Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. first uh, thank the elders of this church for letting me uh, come and preach the word of God this morning. I don't take that lightly, and I, that's a serious thing, and um, thank you for letting me do that um, here today. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, um, you have done so much, Lord, uh, uh, through your gospel. Um, it's amazing to think about the message of the cross, Lord was in this tiny outpost in the Roman Empire thousands of years ago, and now it has spread worldwide. And so I pray that that gospel would be promoted here this morning, and that if someone here is not in right relationship with you, that they would be in right relationship with you today by faith, true faith, in your gospel. Father, we pray for this church as they uh, go to plant another church, Lord, that they would always keep the gospel centered in their efforts and focus. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here in this time and would work through uh, these words and through your word, Lord, to encourage and challenge and convict and uplift people in this congregation. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's sermon is going to center around the topic of evangelism. Now, evangelism, like prayer is often not our favorite topic to talk about in Christian circles. Being asked how you're doing in the area of evangelism is like being asked about a failed New Year's resolution. Regret and self-consciousness often arises. Being asked if you have shared the gospel recently or in what regularity you're sharing the gospel is like being asked by your dentist if you flossed last year. If we haven't, we are tempted to squeak out a less than convincing answer, a less than convincing response. So I recognize wholeheartedly that me being here today talking about evangelism, talking about Christians' need to share the gospel with their neighbors and their family and their friends can be an uncomfortable topic. So right off the bat, I want to give you a few reasons why you should leave this sermon encouraged and not discouraged. First... You should leave this sermon encouraged because everyone here in this congregation needs to grow in this area. There is not a member of this church who would stand up and say, I have arrived when it comes to evangelism. So if you're feeling discouraged, just think, there are other people, everyone else in this congregation, they haven't arrived. They're not perfect in how they're sharing the gospel with their neighbors. Also, I think you have reason not to be discouraged because look what God has done in your congregation. You're planting another church So your congregation has been faithful in this task in many ways, so much so that people have come to faith and that you're able now to plant a different church. Third, a reason not to be discouraged in listening to this sermon about evangelism is that if you are a Christian, God's love and view of you is not defined by what is produced by you in evangelism. God's love for you and God's view of you does not alter or change if you don't share the gospel next week. Know that. 
And lastly, and I really want to emphasize this point as we go through the sermon, is I want you to recognize that God's categories for success in evangelism, God's categories for success in evangelism, is oftentimes not our categories for success in evangelism. God's categories for success in evangelism is not fruit, but faithfulness. And lastly, if you are a non-Christian sitting here today, or someone who has been away from the church and isn't sure about your status or relationship with God, I would invite you to listen closely because you have a front row seat to how and why Christians talk about why they share their faith. So I invite you to listen closely. So we're going we're gonna to be talking from primarily Acts chapter 16 today, but before we jump into that passage, I want to really quick define what evangelism is and what I mean by evangelism. So a simple definition by a good friend, Max Stiles, he says, he calls evangelism this. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with aim to persuade. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with aim to persuade, or sharing the gospel while calling for a response for that person. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So now, of course, this very definition brings more questions, like what is the gospel? So I want to be really clear on that as well. The gospel is the good news of Jesus that man can be forgiven of his sins through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. And the the way you take part in the gospel, the reason it is good news for you is through repentance and faith in Jesus. Oftentimes, like in this book right here, it'll say, God, man, Christ, response. So God, the holy creator, the one we are accountable to, and how man has sinned or rebelled against him, uh, exhibiting his wrath upon us and judgment upon us. And Jesus comes and takes that punishment, provides good news that we must respond to. Another guy, uh, elder of my church, he'll, he'll use that, he'll talk about ruler, God the creator, Result, our sin leads to result of separation from God, a rescue, Jesus coming to earth, paying for sin, and then a response. You actually have to respond to that message. So evangelism. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with aim to persuade. Now, oftentimes when you teach someone something or some new topic, like when you explain to your kid what a horse is, you also explain what a horse is not. So if your son, like maybe Ben's son Clayton, says, sees a zebra and says, hey, daddy, that's a horse, Ben's going to clarify and say, no, Clayton, that is not a horse because so-and-so, because it has stripes. So in defining evangelism, I want to clearly state what evangelism is not to help more clearly define what it is. So evangelism is not just sharing your personal testimony. Evangelism is not just sharing your personal testimony. A testimony can speak to the amazing works of God in your life and could be a great entry point to sharing the gospel with someone. But a story alone, without a presentation of the gospel and calling for someone to respond, is not evangelism. Here's what uh, one author says. He says, in telling people how we have seen God help us, we may not actually make clear his claim on our lives or explain what Christ did on the cross. 
it's good to share a testimony of what God has done in our lives, but in sharing the testimonies, we may not actually make clear what Christ's claims are on other people. In a postmodern culture where your truth is your truth and my truth is my, is my truth, we must make clear that God's truth in the gospel applies to everyone. I have a really good friend who was vetting a, a guy for his sister, and they were talking on the phone, and he, was, he asked this guy, could you explain to me the gospel? To which the guy responded by sharing his personal testimony. My friend stopped him and he said, no, 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 real quick. That's your testimony. I want to know what the, I want to know what the gospel is. Now, I'm not saying a personal testimony is bad. A personal testimony can be used in aid in evangelism, but oftentimes it is not, in fact, evangelism. Evangelism is, is also not just social action. It's not just social action. We can live the gospel out all the time. We want to do that, and your church is one of your core values. But what is key to evangelism is actually articulating the words of the gospel and calling for a response in someone's life. If evangelism was social action alone, then we would be the good news. Evangelism is not just social action. Evangelism is also not just apologetics. We can defend the historicity of the resurrection, of a flood of creation, the validity of faith, all the while never actually sharing the core Christian message of the gospel. Each of these things are tools and aids in evangelism. But by themselves, social action by itself, a testimony by itself, apologetics by itself, may in fact not be evangelism unless you proclaim the gospel message with aim to persuade. So with that set and that groundwork set, I want to turn now to Acts 16, verse 11. So if you'd open your Bible to Acts 16, verse 11. We're going to read verses 11 through 15. Acts 16.11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The main point that I want to share in this sermon from this text is this. The main point for this sermon, if you're taking notes, is this. God will save people by the gospel through ordinary, communal, patient, and intentional evangelism. I'm going to say that again. God will save people through, God will save people by the gospel through ordinary, communal, patient, and intentional evangelism. 
So point one, only two points, short sermon. God God will save people by his gospel. One thing that we must be very clear when we talk about the topic of evangelism and our role in evangelism is, is the rock solid understanding that it is actually God who saves people and confidence that God is saving and will save people. The only thing Jesus promised, in fact, to build was his church. He didn't promise to build parachurch organizations, camps, blogs, or websites. He promised to build his church. So we must have confidence that he's going to do exactly that. Paul, in this passage, had just received the famous Macedonian call. We're in the spirit. He's encouraged to go over and help. So Paul starts, he's in, in before this passage, he's in modern-day Turkey sharing the gospel, and he receives this call to go over to Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. So he island hops over to Greece and arrives here in the city of Philippi. And he comes to a place, it says a, a place of prayer after some days on the Sabbath day, to a place of prayer, and he sat down and spoke to the women. So he's going intentionally to communicate the gospel to a group of women. And what happens? What happens? The Spirit led him to Philippi, and what happens? It says here, uh, in verse, at the end of verse 14, a woman, uh, the one who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, a couple things that jump out as to what's amazing about God saving people in this passage is first, who came to faith? It was a woman. A very scandalous thing in that culture. The first convert was a woman. I highly doubt that Paul, receiving this in the call spirit of a man from Macedonia, expected that the first convert, the first person who actually would believe the gospel message would be a woman. Oftentimes, it's the unexpected person, the one that we don't expect to believe the gospel that does. Secondly, if you notice there in verse 14, she's from the city of Thyatira. Now, what's interesting about this is Thyatira is not in Macedonia. It's not in modern-day Greece. Do you know where it is? It's in modern-day Turkey. So Paul, if you think about the ironic nature of that. Paul receives this call. I'm going to island hop over to Greece. And the first person that comes to faith is not even from Greece. She's an international expat worker living in Philippi, selling goods because her city in Turkey is known for purple dye. Think about how incredible that is and how ironic that is. First convert is not only a woman, she's not even from the country Paul's going to reach. What's amazing to me, how God works, is he's working the same way today as he does back then. In my time in Louisville, me and my friends in the church we're in, we've been able to share the gospel with people from Congo, Nigeria, China, Philippines, India, Bhutan, Iraq, all there for jobs, for business, for careers. In many ways, the Lord ironically brings people to faith that we don't expect. And we see that right here in this passage. The first person that believes that the doors are open to in that city is a woman who's not even from Macedonia. Another thing that is incredibly ironic, and maybe some of you who wouldn't self-identify as a Christian will pick up on, is this woman is identified as a worshiper of God. So you might actually ask the question, why does a worshiper of God need the gospel? 
if you're a non-Christian here today or someone who would classify themselves as a theist or someone who believes in a creator God, I want to challenge you to listen very closely. The fact that you believe in a creator God or worship a God does not, in fact, make you a Christian, does not, in fact, mean that you're forgiven of your sins. I know Muslims who worship God. I know Hindus who worship God. I know Sikhs, which is a variation of Hinduism, who worship God. But none of that makes them a Christian. One passage that is, is soberly difficult to read is Romans 10, 1 and 2, where Paul, in a, an emotional stance, says this. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's talking about Jewish people. He wants his own Jewish people to be saved. But he says this, I bear witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. I have met many people from religious backgrounds, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Roman Catholics, who have zeal for God, but not according to true knowledge. Because I have walked through the scripture with them and seen them say, I've never, I've never heard that before. I've never heard that uh, a man could be forgiven of his sins by only having faith in Jesus. I've never heard that Paul says over and over again, clarifies over and over again in his letters that it's, it's not through works that I'm saved, but it's only through faith. So if you're a non-Christian here or someone who thinks you're a, a, a God-fearer, I want to challenge you and encourage you to set aside that reality and think about what the implication of this text is for you. People who are God-fearers, who are respectable, upright people, aren't not necessarily Christians. The people who identify themselves truly as true Christians are people who have repented of their sins and put their faith in the gospel because they have seen their need for the gospel. Now, we all, we all know this. The gospel is good news. But the reason the gospel is good news is because something terribly bad exists. It can't be good news unless something bad exists. And the bad news is that all of us are sinners. And all of us, because of our sin, are separated from God and are going to be punished for it. And the good, amazing news is that we can be rescued of it through faith in Jesus. And that actually on the cross, he's actually paying for your sin. There's no way that you could pay for your sin, that you could do enough good to pay for your sin. So I implore you, believe in the gospel. Talk to someone about what it means to be a Christian. Ask someone to read the scripture with you so you know for sure. Last thing I'm going to say about this point of God saving people by the gospel is that we should expect God to be up to things with how he, where he puts us in life. We should expect God to be up to things. And that doesn't just include for them to come to faith, but includes for your own personal growth as well. Uh, when I moved to Louisville a year and a half ago, uh, there's various reasons why I moved there, but I had no, expect, I had no idea what was going on when I moved there. Um, many of you know I used to live in the Philippines when I was a kid and uh, have a special love for that people. So when I showed up within the first week of Louisville, I meet a Filipino guy at a coffee shop. And I just walk up to him. I can usually tell now if they're Filipino or not. I walk up to him, introduce myself, say that I was born in the Philippines, ask him if he wants to hang out. So we hang out. And I begin to understand that there is a huge community of migrant international workers in downtown Louisville who come there on year contracts to work for the hotels that have no access to the gospel. And so me and my church community begin to intentionally share the gospel with them. 
and we've seen six people come to faith in the last year and a half, get baptized, and join our local church, profess faith in Jesus. I didn't expect that to happen, but I think we should expect God to be up to things with what he does in our lives, not just for people to be saved, but for our own discipleship. One of the members of this church called me a few months ago and, and asked me questions about a Mormon guy that he's been talking to, that he's been trying to share the gospel with, and how he's having his own questions about the Trinity. Oftentimes, God will put someone in our life so that we grow as a Christian as well. So expect God to be up to things. Don't be surprised when a situation like this happens, where Paul crosses on this missionary journey, and he, the first convert is a woman who's not even from there. So point number one, God saves people by his gospel. Point number two, God saves through ordinary, communal, patient, and intentional evangelism. Ordinary, communal, patient, and intentional evangelism. Now, two things. One, I'm not promising that this is some mystical or special formula where if you do these four things, people are coming to faith. I can't promise that. It's the Lord who calls people to faith. You can see in the passage, Paul shares the gospel to a host of women and one response. But, on the other hand, I will say, it seems to me that in, in my experience in talking with people, that some of these factors are often commonly present when people come to faith. Now, that also doesn't recognize that God could save someone off the street if you met them walking out of the church today. So I'm not saying one or the other. I'm saying that oftentimes it's through ordinary, communal, patient, and intentional evangelism that people come to faith. So ordinary, ordinary evangelism. Uh, Tim Chester in his book, Total Church, he says this, major events have a role to play in church life, but the bedrock of gospel ministry is low-key, ordinary, day-to-day work that often goes unseen. Most gospel ministry involves ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Say that again. Most gospel ministry involves ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. So are you, are you going to go to a Flyers game? I don't even know if the Flyers are playing right now. I don't follow hockey, but are you going to go to a Flyers game? Take a non-believer with you who's your neighbor who loves the Flyers. Mother of three, mother of two, are you going to go apple picking this year? Invite maybe that non-Christian neighbor or that foreigner who's living in town, doesn't know English well. Invite that person to go with you. Get to know them, ask questions of them. Ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Are you going to go trick-or-treating this year? Why not walk up and down the street with a woman or a, a husband or a wife in your neighborhood who have kids the same age as you and hang out with them. Maybe that'll lead to a gospel conversation or an ability to invite them over for dinner. Ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Having a game night with people from your church, it's a lot more comfortable to just hang out with people you know. Invite someone you don't know that well. One of the women in my church in Kentucky, Cindy, is a mother of four all under the age of 10, so hands full. She gets her groceries, like take out, carry out groceries. But she plans it to be at the same time every week so she can be, meet the same woman who's on the same shift every week so she can build a relationship with her to share the gospel. Ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Evangelism should also be communal. In this instance, in this example, 
Paul and Barnabas go together. Now, oftentimes when we hear talks about evangelism, we often hear them on the individual level. Are you sharing with your neighbor? Are you sharing with your coworker? Seldom do we include the communal aspect. Are we as a church sharing gospel with our friends? Uh, Our church in Kentucky, uh, a good friend, uh, oftentimes we use this word right here. We call it mob evangelism. Mob evangelism. All i got to do is get a non-believer to some event, and I can guarantee you someone there is going to be intentional and ask him about his life and share the gospel with him. It's guaranteed. So oftentimes, uh, my friend Mark and I will have some non-believers over at his house for lunch or for dinner, and he'll bring a couple Christians, and he'll just let things happen. People in the church make up for your deficiencies in evangelism. Maybe their experiences help them relate better to that woman. So invite others into the life. Rely on the church to help evangelize. Don't exclude them from people in your life. Oftentimes, people in our culture are looking for friends. So ordinary, communal, patient. It seems that oftentimes patience is the key to seeing someone come to faith. Uh, J.I. Packer says this in talking against fast, coercive tactics of evangelism. He says, it follows, therefore, that high-speed evangelism is not a good option. Evangelism must rather be conceived as a long-term enterprise of patient teaching and instruction in which God's servants seek to simply to be faithful in delivering the gospel message and applying it to human lives and leaving it to God's spirits to draw men to faith through his message in his own timing, at his own speed. Patience. There's a young man named Ian, who in Louisville is a Filipino, really quiet, introverted guy. Um, We met him, we were sharing with him for about six months, getting to know him, and he was always very uh, distant. So one weekend last fall, uh, we took a trip to Nashville. Nashville's like three hours south of Louisville. So we planned a weekend trip to Nashville, and we invited some Christians from church and some non-Christians, and hey, let's go and see Nashville. One of the girls from our church was from there, so we stayed at her mom's house, and we were just intentional all weekend. Ian had spent the prior six months being closed, distant, and on that trip, it was like the doors of his heart were flung open, and he was open, and he was honest, and he was asking questions. We could have given up on Ian and said, maybe he's not going to believe, but patient use has led to now Ian is a professor in faith in Jesus. He is baptized and he is a member of our church. I sat with Ian a month ago in his first members meeting where he is voting on accepting new members in the congregation with joy. Patience. Lastly here, intentional. Intentional evangelism. If you look at this passage, Paul isn't random about his intentionality. Usually in, in, in Acts, Paul will just go to the Jewish synagogue first. But in Philippi, there's no indication that there was a group of Jews, just people that went out to the river to pray. Paul goes there intentionally. So in our evangelism, we should continue to do that intentionally. There are natural bridges in your life through which you can share the gospel. That includes people at your gym, people at your work, your neighbors. You you shouldn't have to hunt down people to be friends with to share the gospel. So again, to, to just quickly review... God will save people by the gospel through ordinary, communal, patient, 
and intentional evangelism. So what my challenge to you is, is to simply be faithful. Success and celebration in evangelism should not just be if someone believes. Success and celebration of this church should be for every time or every opportunity someone has to share their faith. If you have an opportunity to share your faith 10 times in a month and only one person believes, you should celebrate each time the same that someone has shared their faith, someone has shared the gospel, and especially celebrate God if he brings someone to faith. But success is defined not by fruit, but by faithfulness. So I encourage you, be faithful in this. A few minor points of application of what this looks like. Faithfulness will look different for different people in different seasons. Faithfulness will look different for different people in different seasons. So if you're a mother of three young kids, faithfulness might look like intentional evangelism of your children. That's a wonderful and beautiful thing. So faithfulness is going to be evangelism of your children. I love this family come up dedicating their children. Faithfulness is going to be evangelizing their kids who are non-Christians. If you are a busy businessman who doesn't interact with a lot of coworkers, faithfulness might be looking for a potential non-Christian who comes to visit this church, going up to them after church and introducing yourself, asking them questions, not assuming that they're a Christian, and maybe even doing some evangelism in the context of this community. Faithfulness might be children's worker, evangelizing people in this church. So faithfulness is going to look different to different people in different seasons. So be encouraged. Another point of application, just a, just a subtle point in our, in our day-to-day exchanges is ask questions. Just ask questions. And then if you're asked questions back, I encourage you to give subtly provocative answers. So let me explain that because it sounds kind of strange. Ask questions this is, and give subtly provocative answers. So first part, if I'm in a situation where I'm praying to, about how I can share the gospel with someone, I am going to just ask a ton of questions. Because oftentimes, some, somewhere along the way, something flies up that we can interact on a spiritual level. So one example of this is like three weeks ago, I was at the barber shop. And uh, there's a new guy I hadn't met yet named Dion in the barber chair. And I sit down, and we start talking. And we're talking about where he's from, what he's do for work, what sports he's like to play, what movies he likes to watch. And nothing is happening. But I'm asking him questions. So Dion and I switch. I get in the barber's chair, and he sits down on the couch. And now because his arms are free, I notice that he has a, a tattoo streamed on his arm. So I asked Dion, because it looks like, Hindi script from India. I said, hey, is that, is that Indian, Hindi? He's like, no, 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 that's, that's, that's from Nepal. Oh, really, Dion? What, is it, what does it mean? Oh, it's a Buddhist proverb. Oh, really? Buddhist proverb. Could you explain that to me? Are you a Buddhist? No, 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 I'm not a Buddhist. Well, why do you have that? And so you can see, like, even from that little exchange, it led to, after my haircut was do, done, us sitting on the couch for about 15 minutes, where I'm able to share the gospel with this guy, share the truth, truth claims of Christianity with him over against this on his arm. So ask questions. And then the second part is, when you're asked questions back in a conversation, give subtly provocative answers to maybe bring about something in the conversation that would lead to the gospel. So one example is, maybe on Monday morning at work, you're asked, how did your weekend go? 
and a subtly provocative answer could be interesting. I heard a sermon on evangelism. What do you think about when Christians share their faith to you? Or have you ever had a Christian share their faith to you? I don't know. That could probably bring an excellent conversation about. My pastor in Louisville, oftentimes, he'll give a subtly provocative answer when he's explaining his life. He'll finish that with, I'm a member at Third Avenue Baptist Church, which oftentimes will provoke the answer, the question of, what do you mean by a member at Third Avenue Baptist Church? which gives him just a wide open door to share the gospel and share what it means to be a Christian and what it means to belong to a church. So ask questions and give subtly provocative answers. Uh, third, don't expect your church leaders to start something or some program in order to evangelize. Take initiative. Don't expect your church leaders to disciple you on how to be a better evangelism. Take initiative. There's a wonderful book. If you forget the title, come up and talk to me later. A wonderful book. My brother just read it called Evangelism by a guy named Max Stiles. Uh, the girl at my church back in Louisville, she just emailed the whole church and said, hey, a group of us are going to get together and we're going to read this book on evangelism. And they got together and they read this book together. And actually, one of the girls was telling me as I was talking to her about the sermon the other day that they actually went around and practiced sharing their faith to each other just to work out some of the the, the kinks of what it was like to actually explain this message. So don't expect your church leaders to create some program next week on evangelism. Take initiative and do it yourself. Go out there and reach people. Lastly, invite accountability into your life for this. Invite accountability into your life. If you meet with a guy for one-on-one accountability or a, a woman for one-on-one accountability and you ask each other questions about how you're doing in the word, how your marriage is doing, how you're doing with purity. Add a question, how are you doing in sharing the gospel? And pray about it. I'm going to close with this now. One thing I loved about reading, uh, I was reading as I prepared the sermon about your philosophy, your core pillars, and from your blog, and I love this part here about discipleship. It says, our, this is from the UPCC blog, this isn't mine, but it says this, our philosophy from the beginning, has been built on developing a relational model for the purpose of discipleship. And I want to say that statement is brilliant because it brings about all this idea of common, intentional, ordinary. The same thing could be said about evangelism, that it should be built on developing a relational model for the purpose of evangelism with people in your life and including people in the church that you have relationship with. So I would encourage you, God will save people through ordinary, communal, patient, intentional evangelism. So just be faithful. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, uh, we know that uh, you are saving people and you should be honored and praised for that, Lord. I don't even know the history of this church and who has been baptized recently, but you are bringing people to faith, Lord, and we praise you and honor and glorify you for that. Thank you, Lord, for this small picture of 2,000 years ago, a woman responding to the gospel and opening up in a land that didn't have the gospel before. I pray for this church, Lord, and I pray for these people, not to leave this sermon discouraged, but to in, be encouraged and to have joy in being able to share and proclaim the gospel message to others. We thank you for Jesus, Lord, who didn't just stay in heaven, but put aside his interest to put our interests and your interests above to come to earth 
and to die for our sins. We ask this in his name.